0: Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom A journey into mystery and a gateway To the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor Happy to be here with you So that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty Auspicious interbeing to you and yours, my friends Koinos Hermes Deep bow to Sophia. We continue our adventure into some errors of embodiment. We want to get a little more embodied. There's a lot of somatic practice going on around here. And ideally that will all be part of cultivating ecological awareness, ecological intelligence, reindigenizing ourselves. But we really will benefit if we take some extra care A little bit of discernment and think about these errors. And the second error, the first one we dealt with, you can jump in here or you can start at the first one. This is the second one. Forgetting that the body is an abstraction. Now this one came as a shock in my own spiritual practice. I'll just confess that. It was a bit of a surprise, kind of a satori moment. In retrospect, that does seem natural though because we relate to the body as something so concrete. And that, in fact, goes together with the ideology of embodiment or the spiritual materialism of embodiment. Now, the idea that we get sold is that somehow we get, quote-unquote, in our heads and that we have fallen victims of some sort of patriarchal tyranny that keeps us cut off from the concreteness of the body. And I'm saying that a little bit cheeky, yes, because I think that story doesn't give us a very accurate diagnosis, and it only offers us relative healing. Now there's an important wisdom in the feminine, I want to bow to that right now, That's I'm not trying to distract from that, but I, we want to look with a little bit more care to recognize that I think for any human, however you're embodied, If you practice deeply enough, you are going to arrive at that moment of satori where you realize that what you've been calling the body is an abstraction. And that's the general gesture with philosophy. Love wisdom means an end to abstraction and an entrance into intimacy, the birth of intimacy. Holistic philosophical practice reveals to us how deep our abstraction goes our whole lives really amount to abstraction. Our economic system both capitalizes on this and perpetuates it. Through philosophical practice, a real path of love-wisdom, a path of wisdom, love, and beauty, we may arrive at this shocking insight that what we have thought of as so solid and concrete, this body, is just another idea, another abstraction we use to do our life instead of dancing it. The body amounts to as much of an abstraction as our supposedly intellectual ideas. A lot of times that's a little dodge we'll make. And I I think I want to do a whole contemplation just focusing on this issue. But we do play that game and act like there's this intellectual thing and let me come back into my body and we're not realizing that that is filled with concepts. We're still operating through abstractions. Even the notion that we subtly have, some of us, that there's a soul inside this body somewhere, when really we would more accurately say the body is in the soul. The soul has a body inside of it rather than the other way around. The abstractions of embodiment manifest as simply and directly as, for instance, seeing our hand as an appendage of the body. When we look at our hand, we are looking at thinking. That may seem like a challenging suggestion to Grok. Seeing our hand clearly we see the thinking process that brought the hand into being, and we see aspects of the way human beings think relationally. Our hands presence the activity of thinking, and their very structure says something about the thinking of the world, the mindedness of the world. And the structure of this world is relational. Once we see this, then we may also see that if I were to hold up my typically embodied hand and ask you, how many fingers? You could give the answer Gregory Bateson would love to hear, which is, that's not a very good question. Why not? Because finger and five involve abstractions. And counting involves localizable things. Just even the way we relate to the body is like a localizable thing. We're going to hide behind our skin. But if we sense the body as fundamentally relational, then we have a different situation since relationships aren't localized things. We can't possess what we can't count, so to speak. We can't possess what we can't localize. Once we leave abstraction, we find ourselves entangled in intimacy, inconceivability, and radical interwovenness. This makes our embodiment a dance of mutuality, mutual nourishment, mutual illumination, mutual liberation. Our body does not have an existence independent of our whole practice of life and the entirety of the cosmos. We may want to truly accept and love our body and our embodiment, but which body? Because our body depends on the means by which we know it and manifest its functioning in this relational world, this dynamic flow of interwovenness. And our abstractions in relation to the body can seduce us further into the implicit or unconscious sense of ourselves as a body with a soul in it. And as we just said, our practice of wisdom, love, and beauty can reveal that the soul has a body in it. The soul is vast and transcends what we refer to as this localizable body. And our practices of embodiment can functionally shrink and internalize the soul. Not necessarily intentionally. Because I'm sure a whole chorus of somatic practitioners and embodiment people we'll say, hey, that's how I think of the body. It's relational, it's this, and it's cosmic, and it's mystical. That's, That's great. It might be that you're not making this error. Or it might be that what we say on the surface doesn't really match what our practice gets us to manifest and realize. Sometimes it's just a matter of the context. Within this context, so filled with fragmentation, we will face some extra challenges to get back to wholeness. Now, all of this has implications for our suffering, loneliness, and self-loathing. Can we really allow our suffering to show its true nature? Can we let it be there but not get pulled into new abstractions and evasions, not merely wallow in suffering, however subtly, because of course there's an obvious wallowing, but then there's a way where we subtly wallow in it. How do we practice a path of embodied suffering and embodied liberation at the same time? And keep in mind that that liberation means we're free from thinking we are restricted to this body. Our soul and its body have the indigenous capacity for skill, grace, and dignity. But none of those aspects arise independently of how we practice our life. Life requires learning. And that learning becomes empowered by the presence of graceful, skillful, dignified others. And this speaks to our need for genuine adults, not chronological adults, but genuine adults and genuine elders and spiritually advanced beings, really advanced, the saints, the sages, the priestesses and so on, as well as non-human teachers of special capacity. When you meet a unique horse, every horse is magical. Some horses, you're just sure that's a bodhisattva. You're sure that's a saint, sage, priestess in disguise. Same thing with some wolves, some dogs, some birds. So there are non-human teachers all over the place, but then even among the non-human teachers, there are some of special capacity. In the presence of a skillfully embodied horse, just as one example, we can learn a lot about our ability to become grounded. Being grounded, that, I just let's put that word in quotes, because being grounded is basically an abstraction that people use with a, a, a degree of frequency. It's a common thing. Let me get grounded. let me get grounded. Well, what does that mean? In the presence of a horse, especially if it happens to be one of those skillful horses, we can receive something like a mind-to-mind, body-to-body teaching about becoming more grounded. It happens almost by magic. And thus, it requires even greater care to dispel any self-deception that creeps in, you know. We do seem to need this kind of magic, but then that means we're going to have to be really careful with it because the self-deception wants to sneak in. Whoa! Get that electricity, that energy of the magic, and the ego wants to jump in right away. Intellectually, we can find the abstract nature of the body problematic. The discovery that things are what they are not independently, but rather based in part on how we are. That discovery has caused a lot of confusion and has led a lot of people to rail against the so-called postmodern professors who tried to present it to the dominant culture as best they could, because that discovery really, it belongs to the mystics. And by the time the dominant culture really caught up to it in a broad way. Mysticism had been very well marginalized. That discovery would be fine for Plato, and it was fine for Buddha, but the difference is that we lost touch with Socrates and Plato and that tradition of wisdom, and we decided to go with science. Other cultures, not just ones influenced by Buddhist philosophy, there's a, this is a thing that many cultures have come to, but in the case of Buddhist philosophy, for instance, that continued to develop all the way to the present day. But in our culture it actually created a problem because this realization came in the sciences and in the more university-style philosophy. And it has continued to cause us problems. It's, it's, it's a challenge that we have to get through. And we can go back to the wisdom traditions for guidance. And some of these traditions have worked with it for centuries. This idea that things are not simply what they are, but they are how they are in dependence on, they depend on how we are. And so therefore how we know the world is not just the world is out there and then we know it, but that what we know depends on how we go about knowing. That's why our practices of embodiment are important and why we need to give them care and discernment. In the dominant culture, the preponderance of professors of philosophy over real philosophers, and I don't mean this as a, some personal attack, it's just the way it is, but this preponderance of professors over philosophers led to a kind of nihilism and confusion in the face of this discovery. And we haven't metabolized it, really, in the dominant culture. If all events or things express dynamism, ambiguity, and interwovenness such that how we relate with them helps to determine what they are, then naturally we might at first declare, oh, it's all relative. Everything is a social construct. But this ignores the fact that this dynamism and interwovenness goes both ways. While our participation in the world constitutes the happenings of the world, the beings, moments, and situations, those happenings constitute us in return. And that means that certain aspects of life cannot arise merely in accord with our whim. We cannot just blink and the law of attraction makes things how we want them because all the other beings are out there too. They all have a say. Whether we like it or not, the other beings of this world, human and non, have a say in our life as does our history and the history of all beings. We can't just will a cup of coffee to suddenly transform and appear as a living rabbit. It's not going to happen. Law of Attract all day long. We cannot age in reverse merely because we feel younger than we look. And we cannot become an elder in our community merely because we feel wise or because we've obtained some material success. Leaving all abstraction and entering into the inconceivable interwovenness of all things has so far demanded extensive learning, holistic training of the heart, mind, body, and world. That's the only way out of these abstractions. We can't will it and we can't just somaticize our way out because we need holistic training. We need extensive learning. Now, sure, it could happen. You could just sit down, somaticize yourself right into enlightenment. It's just not likely. And so then it behooves us to turn to the wisdom traditions to get some holistic teachings and to put in the time that might seem intellectual, but it's not. So we have to get past that. If we feel that we're enmeshed in more abstractions, we need to change the way we're working with it because it should affect our embodiment. When we read the Buddha's teachings, we are reading how to be differently in this body. And our attempts to avoid the effort our wisdom traditions teach that we must put in seem to relate to the abstraction and delusion that creates our image of our body. In in point of fact, whatever we proclaim, we generally treat spiritual liberation as an abstraction, as a concept, because that's all it is for us. Unless we're enlightened, it's not a real experience. We don't know what it is. It involves a precision we can scarcely imagine. So when we think about our liberation, that's an abstraction. Part of the concrete Path to a more skillful embodiment involves an experience of dropping away the habitual body and mind. As we progress in our spiritual life, and especially as our formal meditation practices progress as part of a holistic philosophy of life, a holistic love wisdom, we may, in fact, we sh- it should ha- happen at some point, depends on how we're practicing. Don't force anything, but generally speaking, we're going to experience a dropping away of the habitual body and mind. And we need some preparation for it. Because the ego can get reactive in various ways when that happens. Some of it can be unpleasant. It's not always easy to give up abstractions that we have made into a nest. And the phoenix gives us an archetypal image of this. That image says that we must not only learn to leave the nest and fly, but the nest itself must burn away and with it will burn away our habitual notions of body and mind that we are clinging to. So the flames are coming up, burning what we think we have to hold on to, what we think of as ourselves. That's that identification we talked about as the first error. And so the flames can seem not just scary, but terrifying. And the good news is they only burn away our delusions. We are identified to, to those, identified with them and attached to them. But the delusions can burn away. And when that happens... It brings a tremendous rejuvenation to us in the world. That's the rebirth we were talking about. Now, I think I said we were going to do the second error, but I also mentioned in the last contemplation that maybe we could combine some, and I think we can fit the third error in here too. So if you were wondering why does the title, I think I'll, I'll title this Errors 2 and 3, and uh, why, wait, why does he say two and three when it's only number two. No, let's do the third one, because I think we can do the third one without extensive contemplation, because I think a little more of the third one will come out in the fourth and fifth, maybe. But I think we can just say a few words about the third error. The third error of embodiment is subtly maintaining the duality of mind and body. And we, when we think about the need for holism as the fifth error, I think that and even when we think about mistaking the goal in the fourth error, this will maybe get more elaborated. So we're not saying everything about any of these errors. We're not this is not a complete discussion. So let's think about this. as an error of here we are. we're trying to get more embodied, and we do we subtly maintain a duality between mind and body when we do that? And I think we can. I think some people do. And it shows up widely, I think, this error. If you look and you listen to the way people talk, especially in the New Agey communities and especially in certain somatic circles, I think we find, for instance, the calls that we hear all the time to move from the head to the heart. Such a notion, I think, sustains dualities like mind-heart, mind-body, reason-emotion the deeper error we make has to do with separating the head from the heart in the first place and separating both of those from larger ecologies of sentience. We're already separated from mountains, rivers, forests, oceans, plains, and very few somatic practices really work on that. Now, of course, many do. Many, many, many somatic practices and embodied practices do try to reunite us with the larger ecologies of sentience, but many simply do not. It's not really there. And again, in relation to the last two errors, we see that a lot of this involves abstraction and a failure to address the deep problems of identification and attachment. And in relation to all this, we need to acknowledge the heart has its delusions as much as the head does. If we want to make that duality and say, hey, we need to move from the head to the heart, why? Because the head has delusions? Well, so does the heart. Ask anybody who's been captured by limerence. Maybe you want to say, well, no, but that was their head. Well, they felt it in the body. If you've never felt limerence, I have. Feels like your heart's telling you that this is the one. Feels like you're feeling it in your body. And I I think if we look at the wisdom traditions, they really tell us that ignorance does not care how it gets channeled. It will do its work. Ignorance will do its work whether we operate from the head, the heart, the navel, or the unmentionable. Ignorance will do its work. It will find its way through. And so if we don't take a little bit more care, compassion, some wisdom, some discernment, our attempts to get into the body may leave mind and body as much separated as we currently find them. We may end up unintentionally retreating from clear thinking in favor of fleeting sensations in the body. Now, as one somewhat silly example, students in certain progressive Let's put that in quotes. Progressive institutions may respond to a presentation by saying, and I have seen this firsthand, that feels really good in my body. But then whatever follows from that, and maybe nothing follows from that, but whatever follows from that doesn't seem to be particularly insightful. And we exist now in this anti-intellectual climate. And one of the reasons why is because critical thinking, clear thinking, is so dangerous. It is a greater act of rebellion than a lot of what passes as embodied and somatic. As much as I respect embodied and somatic practices as important acts of rebellion against the pattern of insanity, clear thinking... What we would ordinary, I mean, it would be so tempting to think of it as intellectual or abstract, but that clarity of thought is such a tremendous act of rebellion. It's why we have an anti-intellectual vibe in the dominant culture, particularly at its leading edge here in Turtle Island, United States. We have to remember the great need we have for this thing we would call reasoning. Now, I want those to be holistic. Remember, in the last era, we were suggesting that our hand, when we look at the hand that seems, hey, that's part of my body, it's the hand, that is thinking. Evolution is a mental process. So when I'm talking about reasoning and I'm talking about thinking, I'm saying something holistic that we shouldn't divide off body and mind, but from this standpoint of the duality, the thing I'm talking about is the head then. It is the mind. You, you see, I, I know that might sound like I'm not trying to equivocate. I'm trying to say that, hey, I want to advocate holism. I don't think that's what happens. I think that when we get into these somatic practices, we effectively retreat from the mind. We maintain a subtle duality. And when you do that, if you're going to, when you do when that happens, then the thing I'm talking about is thinking, but well, that's going to seem much more like it's mental. Now, I don't think we have to practice it that way. I think that's the problem, that we divided reason and emotion, divided the head from the heart in the first place. So don't say, let's move from the head to the heart. No, let's stop the duality. Because when you maintain it, then when I say, hey, we need reasoning and clear thinking, well, that seems like the mind and not the body. So, We need critical thinking. What that means is we need critical embodiment. That'd be nice. I had to teach critical thinking in the university. I I, I didn't like those courses. I disagreed with them. Now, I did agree with my colleagues, my fellow philosophers or professors, as it may be, that we need critical thinking. Of course, absolutely. But but the spirit of it does divide things, and so but but still that notion we need critical thinking, right? As if there's there's ordinary thinking that's kind of like mindless, and you know we're not, and then there are all these errors in the way people think. I mean, those are real things. That's why those courses exist. Because if you engage in a process of thinking with somebody, you find out, hey, well, they're not doing a very great job, it doesn't seem. And then that person says, well, hey, you know, I'm not an intellectual, but no, that's that's not it. It's just that there's confusion. You could we could iron this out. And the same thing happens with embodiment. Well, I'm getting embodied. Okay, but let's do some critical embodiment. That doesn't mean I want to criticize you. That means, are we really doing this in a good way? Ethically, with clarity, with the kind of precision that the great mystery demands from us? And that critical embodiment becomes a need because the dominant culture and conquest consciousness in general, will happily embrace and encourage our embodiment if the way we experience the body perpetuates and even elaborates the pattern of insanity. The dominant culture is fine with embodiment. It's so great because why? It's a huge industry. Think of how much money is involved in all the somatics, all the yoga, all the fancy chic yoga stuff, right? There's a lot of money there and not a lot of challenge to the pattern of insanity itself. Our economic system depends on the manufacture of embodied desires and needs. And our need for embodiment can get co-opted more readily than we may wish to acknowledge and maybe more readily than we understand. And so it doesn't seem optimally helpful to say things like the body knows. The body knows. Really? That that seems to run too great a risk of maintaining a duality between mind and body. And it seems to lack holistic vision. We have to ask ourselves, well, do we really know what knowledge is in the first place? Do we really understand what knowing is and how to know more skillfully how to experience more gracefully do we genuinely understand and can we begin to understand understand what heart mind body world and cosmos really are or is If we don't slow down and reflect a little, I think we'll move our suffering around. It's just like it, it was over here, now it's over there. That, that, that's, I think it, that's what will happen, it's what is happening. Our suffering, our ignorance just takes new forms. We may feel better in a relative sense as that happens. But it won't necessarily make our situation any less dangerous for us or the beings who depend on us, the beings we depend on. In the best case, practices of embodiment can bring mind and body a little more into unity and harmony. In the even better than best case, the even better than best case, we follow a holistic philosophy of life that synchronizes heart, mind, body, world, and cosmos, a delightful synchronicity of heart, mind, body, world, and cosmos, a total interwovenness of these. Embodiment then becomes an aspect of real magic. We need the expansive vision of that kind of even better than best case scenario, especially since the worst case scenario involves embodiment becoming another form of spiritual materialism in which we bypass the more serious demands of a philosophical or spiritual or religious life, we bypass that with rationalizations so perfect they sound like the voice of liberation itself. An expansive, skillful, realistic vision can help us to liberate mind and body, mind and nature and let the magic that can flow through them begin to find us again. Okay, that seems like a good stopping place. I think we'll try to do probably the fourth error by itself and the fifth error by itself, and then we'll get into some possibilities for transcendence. I want to say just possibilities for transcendence, but at least possibilities for transcending these five errors, and maybe that's transcendence in general by the time we finish contemplating it. Now, if you have any questions, thoughts, reflections, again, remember first, as a caveat to your questions, thoughts, reflections, comments, stories, this is not complete, this discussion. We are not hitting everything we could, and there are exceptions to everything that we say. But these are also, this is a reflection of trends. I've been around a lot of embodiment practices and somatic circles and encountered professionals working in these veins, and I hear the way people talk, and these errors seem to be present. And we also just know that these practices have been around for, for decades now. I think we started to get pretty serious about embodied stuff, say in the 60s, started to get kind of serious, and but it goes back earlier than that. And these, of course, these things always have ebbs and flows, but Ecologies continue to degrade, and that's why we really have to think carefully. A political situation, there's more tension, there's more, there's more polarization, there's, there's more temptation to violence, and, and then we're having outbreaks of wars in Europe and in the Middle East, this is, and other places. You know? So we, it seems that we need to reflect with a lot of care. And that's all we want to do, so that we have a mutual liberation, and we try to move from and toward wholeness more and more. And then we wouldn't have to talk about embodiment. A lot of people probably wouldn't realize that I, would, I could qualify as, I could, you know, so to say, put out a shingle that says Holistic Embodiment Professional. The reason is that I don't want to separate these things. I'm a philosopher. And really every philosopher should be considered a Holistic Embodiment Professional. And it, it just goes together. So there's, I, I usually don't say that I'm a somatic practitioner or I have somatic practices or embodied this or embodied that. I spend more time talking about the things that, that we need to focus on, which, which are wisdom, love, and beauty, the ecologies, the great mystery, and the body will be there with us. It's integrated into a holistic philosophy. It's there. And so then we don't have to go to an extreme and say the body, the body, the body. It's okay. Let's just keep it whole. And that's a little bit what these two errors, and really even the next two errors are related to this. They're all interwoven. Okay, that's enough, everybody. I will see you next time. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, and big fan of embodiment, reminding you that your soul, your body, And the body and soul of the world are not two things, so take good care of them, my friends.